it out. Get it out. Hello and welcome to episode 120 of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. In this quick on-the-counter episode, Chris and I are going to recap a tough loss to Austin FC and go ahead and preview our upcoming match this weekend versus the Columbus Crew. Joining us as our opponent correspondent this week will be Blake Eshelman from MLS Gone Wild. Please give them a follow at MLS Gone Wild. As always, I am Jonathan Reimer and joining me, Christopher Signs. What's up, brother? going on man what's going on talking another another week of footy another episode another loss but i feel like lafc is gonna definitely switch gears come this weekend versus columbus and it's gonna set the tone for the match next weekend against the galaxy i am not so convinced we are gonna see a change of form this weekend i am hoping for a beautiful result next week of course but first and foremost let's go ahead and talk about this 2-1 loss to the fighting broccolis of Austin FC. So first and foremost, before anybody kicked off the ball, we saw that the curse of the white shorts was back at the bank. Did you instantly know, my friend, the second you heard that we were going to be wearing our, I guess we're not supposed to call them away kits. There are alternate kits, but the fact that we were wearing white at the bank, did that give you concerns at the onset? No, I mean, I don't, I'm not really like a big superstitious kind of guy. I, don't really put much stock into it. And please, for those of us that don't know, what is the curse of the white shorts at the bank? I would just say that in general, we tend to play poorly when we wear our white kits at the bank. I don't have any kind of statistics to back this up. I probably should do that, but I'm just not a fan. I'm not a fan of white kits at the bank in general. I don't like the whole cream top white shorts. I feel like the shorts should be the same as the top. I get it. It's supposed to be fashionable or whatever, but I'm not buying it. I just think at the bank, LAFC should be in my favorite kit of all time, the season five all black kit. And there's absolutely no reason that anyone showing up to the bank should force us to have to wear a different kit. And I think we should always wear black at home. And anytime we're wearing white at home, I'm instantly not happy. And maybe I'm interjecting a superstition upon it that doesn't exist, but I don't like it. I don't necessarily understand why it happened either. Unless Austin just didn't bring their frost green kits, their alternate kits that they had just gotten for this season. You know, I don't know. I don't know why LAFC, because I, I don't feel like the kits would have been conflicting that much, even if they had to wear their normal home kit. The Austin had to wear their normal home kit and LAFC wore their normal home kit. I still feel like you would be able to tell the difference between the two kits. Last time Austin came to the bank, we wore black. But however, when we did go to Austin, we wore the lighter kit. And I have no problem with us wearing whites on the road. Perfectly fine with that. I just don't like seeing the boys line up in the white kits at the bank. It's, it's my own thing. And, and I will die on this hill. I don't want to see it. It's really neither here nor there. It, I mean, at, at the onset... You know, I mean, but if you think back to that match too, I'm pretty sure Austin was wearing all white in that 2021 match. I, I don't know. Maybe there is too much contrast in the MLS for the Austin home kit and the LAFC home kit. And so somebody had to wear something different and maybe the alternate kit is not different enough. I don't know. I, who cares? It's all it, the more know. reason to get LAFC a third kit. We are one of the best-selling kits in the league. There's absolutely no reason why I didn't have earned an alternate third kit when so many other clubs have. What color? If you could pick a third kit, what kind of, like, would you want, like, something that's just totally off the wall, like, in terms of a color where it has no relevance 
to the color scheme of the club. So you could pick something like a green or a blue or a, you know, just something that's just totally not even in our color scheme. Or would you want to pick something that could be like how we have red as like a third color, kind of like if you look at the original crest coloring and the colors of the club, like red was one of the like third or fourth colors in the whole scheme. Like, would you want to try and have it be like a tie into where it's somewhat related? I think if I was to pick a solid color, I don't really like third kits being a solid color. I think that's well, no, but I mean like primarily. Do... Yeah, like but it prim- should be red. Because it's black, gold, and red, right? I mean, we talk about black and gold, but originally it was black and red. And I think if we were going to have a first third kit doing something mostly red makes sense. But third kits are usually when the little artistic expression is allowed, right? Whether it's Portland and the rose print kits they have this year or Seattle and the Jimi Hendrix kits they had last year. Those weren't third kits, though. Those were their introduced kit the alternates those are their introduced alternate kits you know so seattle doesn't have three kits this season and portland doesn't have three kits this season you know so that artistic side is kind of utilized in the alternate kit anyways well i would like a third kit i have no problem with us having a black kit and a white kit that's fine let's just have the shorts match the top please all right but i think it would be cool if we had some cool designed third kit I don't care what it is. Uh, I have to say, who was it in USL that just released the Sarape kit? That thing's fire looking. But you know what? I I like the, like, you know, and most of the time we think about European leagues with the third kits, right? Like that's definitely like a very common place where you'll see a lot of those third kits be advertised. I like when they do these wild, just unrelated colors to the color scheme. You know, I think that that's really cool because you just won't get that. Forward Madison. Forward Madison. Oh, well, Forward has, Madison has like 15 kits every season, dude. Like their kits are wild all the time. And they're always good. They're always good. But I really liked um they have a 2022 Sarape kit, Sarape kit that is all black and it has a, a sash that's Sarape and then the collar and the edges of the sleeves are Sarape. Go check it out, Forward Madison. It's like one uh, of the most fire kits out there. That's a uh, Scarf's USL sided team. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Shouts JR. Good guy. I can't say I've ever watched uh, uh, any forward Madison games to root for them, but uh, the kids fire. The thing that also lends to that is the fact that they don't have a jersey manufacturer, a kit manufacturer that every club in the USL championship is required to have. So that also gives them a little bit more freedom to pick and choose how they want to make kits in a season. So different set of rules allows for more flexibility i think you can tell at this point that we're really trying to avoid talking about this game because it was a terrible game we've spent the first 20 minutes of this show talking about kits that don't even exist for us but um let's let's go ahead and and as we love to say tear the band-aid off let's get into it so mario was back there were some bright spots we're starting to get a couple people back from injury so at the onset of the game we're thinking okay cool murray's back that's great We're going to see fall back at some point in this game. Raito as well, too. So we were excited about that. And then, of course, we learned that Escobar, what we learned over the weekend, uh, that Escobar is injured again. And we're starting to wonder, like, is this guy ever going to be healthy? And that, of course, meant with the injury to Hollingshead as well, too, that Acosta had to start at right back. I love Acosta. He is a great signing for LAFC. He is not looking good as a right back. 
And it didn't take long for our outside backs to be exposed, although it, it wasn't the person you thought it would be. Of course, it ends up being Chiqui Palacios that ends up making a clearance that goes directly to an Austin player right there at the top of the box. One quick pass later, they are able to get themselves an easy tap in. And that's kind of the way the game went for us. A small LAFC mistake yields an opportunity, and that opportunity turns itself into a goal for Austin. And despite all of the work that LAFC put in, and frankly, they dominated in virtually every statistical category throughout the course of this game. We had 14 corners in this game none of which resulted in a goal. Austin, by the way, had one corner in this game, which, by the way, resulted in a goal for them. So, you know, frustrating uh, to see things work out that way. Mahala had a couple huge opportunities in this game. He misses the back of the net. LAFC, 58% of the possession, 18 shots, seven of which on goal, not a single one goes in. LAFC had zero chances created on the day, which is a statistic I still don't completely understand because it certainly seemed to me like there were chances throughout the course of this game. Yellows, LAFC only had three, Austin had five. We knew at the beginning of the match, Murillo's back, he's guaranteed to get a yellow in every single game he plays in. And despite all of that statistical dominance, all of your talking heads across the greater MLS league are describing this as a game in which Austin dominated. Chris, do you feel that Austin dominated this game? I think that Austin played well, given the circumstances. You know, they scored early. And by scoring early, your tactics change. And every team does it, especially when they play LAFC at the bank. It's, you know, if you can get one in early, tactics are going to switch to where we're going to be a little bit more possessive with the ball. We're going to be a little bit more defensive. And it's harder for LAFC to put the pressure on when you've got teams holding back the counterattack opportunities because they're not pressing and they're not moving the ball forward. You know, when you look back at that first goal that went in, yes, Palacios didn't do a great job in clearing it. But when you watch that replay, you know, it was an awkward position for him to gain control of that ball in the first place. And the action happened so fast on that pitch that, you know, you've got to realize that you know, the, the ball drops somewhat behind his back. He's turning his back a little bit. He sees the ball. He looks over, he tries to get it and he just doesn't get a good first touch on it to control the ball. And it ends up going one of the Austin players feet. And then he passes it up to uh, that defender. Number four, I, for, I can't recall his name for the life of me right now, but it gets to him and then boom, there's a goal, you know? So that was just unlucky a little bit. I also think too, that the, uh, Gabrielson, I believe is the name. Thank you, Gabrielson. But the, the, and then the goal that happened later in the match, you could see that uh, Diego Fagundes was looking there and he was baiting Max Crepeau to cheat over for the pass, right? Diego Fagundes was cheating in. He was like looking over, looking over, looking over. And then all of a sudden he fires it in short side. And I mean, it just barely missed Max's hands on the replay. And that, that might've been something that given a half second of, of, not anticipating the pass and, and preparing more for the, for the shot. Again, I think that that, that was something that just didn't necessarily fall our way. Kind of a fluky goal. If it were to be, I, I think um, it's poor defensive alignment as well to fall is way out of line with the rest of the defense. And if fall is playing the same high line as the rest of the defense, it's offsides. 
but fall plays three players on side and you end up getting a three on one coming back the other way. And whether Fagundes slots it in to Max's right or plays the pass to a tap in at the far post, it was over at that point. Once the possession was coming forward three on one, it was going to have to take an amazing save or an amazing clearance by fall. Neither of those things happened. And, and, and those goals are preventable in the structure, in the buildup, right? When you get down to the moment where the shot happens, you know, flip a coin. Sometimes you save them, sometimes you don't. But, but fall being out of position is really what set that goal up. And, and that's kind of the part that frustrated me, right? I think all of us agree that fall is our best center back in form right now. When Segura gets back and we see what he returns to, hopefully it's the form we saw from him a year ago. But if we get Segura back, I think everybody is saying right now, Segura and fall would be in your starting 11, right? Which puts the likes of Mario and Ibiaga and Donnell Henry into the place where we expected them to be at the point in time in which they got signed for the club, which is into a backup role into your cup game roles. And I think we're all right with that. Mario, I love having him back. He did not look particularly sharp in this game. It's probably going to take him a few games to get it under back in the locker, right? Back, back going the way we expect him to go. Raito, on the other hand, he looked fantastic when he came in. I'm excited that he's returned to form. I'm really hoping we get to see some more minutes from him over the course of these next couple games. But I still have big question marks as to what's going on at right back for this team. We sell Kim Moon-Wan, we get the million dollars, and then we let the window close without replacing him. And when we talked to Will Kuntz about this just a couple episodes ago, Will said, oh, look, you got Hollingshead that can play on other side. You got Escobar coming back. You've got Palacios. You know, those three are enough. Well, I, I just don't think that was enough when we had eight games in four weeks, right? We sold Kim Moon-Wan right before that stretch. And we have not seen anyone come up from Las Vegas Lights to fill that spot, which seems like the logical thing to do at this point if you're not going to bring someone in. And instead, we had to play Acosta out of position. And, you know, look, like other shows have said, I, I'm, I'm sure Acosta was the first person to say, I got this, I can do it, don't worry about it. That's what you expect from a player. But the proof's in the pudding, right? And he didn't have it. It, it was not a good game from Acosta at right back. He does not look like himself there. He had some no. great service on corners, which didn't amount to much, but go ahead. Yes, I think that Kellen Acosta looked a little bit uncomfortable. But at the same time, too, when did we get the announcement that Escobar was going to be hurt? How much time did Acosta get at having an opportunity to, to get time with the first team at the right back position? All of those things have to be considered, you know, and especially because we were traveling back from Colorado to come back home. There's a travel day. Then there's the fitness day or the practice day. I think that if it continues to be a situation where we need to have Kellen Acosta filling in at the right back position, I think that it will work itself into where it's okay. Kellen Acosta has played right back before. That's part of his versatility is the ability to play as a defensive player. Do you think he looked good at right back in this game? No, I, I think he, I don't know. I don't, I don't think he looked particularly comfortable, but again, I don't, I'm trying to give him benefit of the doubt. I'm, I'm being hopeful that his ability is more than what we saw in this match and that it's just a matter of him getting the minutes, him getting the time in practice, and him getting more of an opportunity to be fully prepared with a full week's worth of practice. I see that point. I'm with you on that one. He, but again, we're only forced into this situation because we sold Kim Moon Wan. And I get it. Good money. Good transaction. Nothing wrong with us cashing him in for a million dollars. My problem is the not replacing him part. You can't sell a guy off 
without bringing someone in because now we're playing a central midfielder as a right back and, and it didn't work. And, and that to me, you got, you got to look at JT and will and say, look, you know, I get it. Good money. You got good money for moon, but that depth that we lauded this team for having is getting thinner and thinner. And at this point, we don't have a right back playing right back. And that's an issue to me. They should have gone out and got somebody. And I certainly think for a couple hundred grand of the million dollars we made for moon, you could find yourself a fourth outside back. I'm not asking for a Tam Gam player. I'm not asking for a DP back there. I'm not asking them to go out and get a world-class right back, but we need a serviceable right back for situations like this. And I don't think we got that from Acosta. You're right in the sense of the short term, but who knows how serious the injury is with Escobar, how serious the injury is with Hollingshead. I think that, you know, you can't also just go out and buy anybody. You know, it has to be the right, it has to be the right player. It has to be the right time. They have to be the, they have to be willing to go. The negotiations have to be worked through. That's not to say that those initiatives weren't taken either. I think that we need to just, understand that injuries are going to happen and i think that acosta will be serviceable in the interim until either escobar or hollingshead are healthy well let, let's hope that uh the performance gets better because the performance we saw was was not particularly bright in this match now it's a match that in our last episode i said lafc does not need to win right but it would have been nice to scratch out at least a one one tie given the situation and frankly we had that opportunity we a got two, a foul two tie we got a foul inside the box that everyone and their mother on social media and looking at VAR has agreed was clearly contact inside the box. But once again, pro refs decide not to grant the penalty to LAFC. And at this point, you got to be scratching your head thinking this is so many calls now that have gone against us. And frankly, three games that have been decided. We only played 12 games. And we've had three of them decided against us by questionable refereeing calls. And I know that it doesn't matter what a ref says, there's going to be people on either side of the aisle, right? And in that last game where the two pens were given in the first 30 minutes, there were a lot of people that said, yes, those were pens. I get it. But if those were penalties, if what we saw in the last match were, were penalties, how is this not a pen? I, I just don't understand. There's contact made to the back of the player's heel or calf there inside the box that's a foul anywhere on the pitch and i have to wonder if lafc's tendency to oversell contact especially inside the box and our tendency to have these quote-unquote mass confrontations with the ref aren't just painting the entire squad and the franchise in a negative light with pro to the point where they're like look we're not going to give it to lafc because yeah there was contact but you oversold it now the ref doesn't want to call it or you have a tendency to get in the ref's face and bark about five or six other calls. And so when the time comes for the ref to make a gut decision, they've got in the back of their mind that, you know, this LAFC team is disrespectful to the referees or that, you know, they've been fined for all these confrontation incidents. And you have to wonder if at some point in time that is affecting the decision making because the calls can only go against us bizarrely so many times before all of us have to stop and say, what is going on with the relationship between LAFC, MLS, and pro refereeing? Because what we're seeing is not accurate or frankly professional at this point. 
And it's infuriating to all of us out there who don't feel like we're getting an honest game that's called the same both ways. And I get that frustration from the LAFC fans. But Chris, I mean, what are your thoughts on it? Do you think they have it out for us or is it just that's how it goes? I think that if the league as a whole, that I feel that more teams complain about VAR and the inconsistency with calls than teams that won't. So while, yes, I do think that we are on the unlucky side of calls right now, I don't think that it's targeted to LAFC. I do believe, I do think that there is a bit of uh, an embellishment, right, that that the players can do. And that I, I, you know, I had never really thought of it that way in terms of calls on the field. I think that referees know that when they come to call an LAFC match that they are going to have to really be critical and selective with what calls they truly call because there are are so many players that would over embellish calls that don't deserve to be called. But I always was just thinking that that's just part of the game and that every team is doing it. But, you know, now I want to take a closer look and see if, you know, if there aren't teams that have players that are not really as blatant with trying to sell a penalty i think across the league when there's contact you get a demonstrative response from the player i can't look across this league and think of one player who when he gets hit in the box in the back of the leg isn't going to go down whether the contact warranted him hitting the ground or not i can't think of a single one that wouldn't go down you know what gets me about this non-called penalty against diego palacios was when you look at the player that came in from Austin and he was trying to kick at the ball. You can see that the, the momentum of his leg is coming in and it stops as soon as it hits his leg, you know, like that momentum comes in and it just stops. And it's like that. Yes. You can see that he literally just kicked him. Like his foot had to stop because he hit something. I just, I don't understand what else the referee would have had to have seen in order for it to have been convincing to him that it would have been a penalty. The only thing I can think of is that the reaction after contact was so overly dramatic that the ref didn't want to buy into it at that point. And I just have to wonder if we're overselling fouls to the point where it's costing us, right? And and there's a way to go down and not be have it be quite the soap opera that it is every time we hit the deck. Like you can go down, take the contact, hit the deck and get back up without grabbing your ankle and rolling around and doing some of the other stuff that infuriates so many fans out there. When we see it, when other teams do it, we don't like it. And I get it. You, you kind of have to sell fouls in this league to get them called. Cause if you just took contact and didn't do anything with it, then the refs are never going to call it. Right. So in order to get the ref to call it, you, you have to embellish a little, I just think sometimes we go a little too far and it ends up affecting the call. And if we just go down, we're probably more likely to get a call than if we go down, grab an ankle, roll around, gripe, get in a ref's face. I just don't think any of that's effective. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually think that the way Carlos goes down is a, a more tolerable way. You know, I don't see Car- – like when Carlos gets fouled, I don't see him rolling around and like grabbing his ankle or grabbing – like he goes down and then he'll look up and he'll be like, hey – what about that call? Right. And like, I feel like that's a little bit more of a tolerable way to go down than, than 
the over embellishing, like rolling all over, like as if you're like in terrible pain. Yeah, it just it doesn't look good. The optics of it are not great. And I can see how that gets into the back of a decision maker's mind as I don't want to reward this behavior. Right. When really the only thing the ref should be judging in VAR is everything up to the point of contact. Right. What happens after contact is irrelevant in deciding whether or not there was contact inside the box. But it has to be something. There has to be an answer as to why so many of these calls don't go our way, and especially this one in particular. And the only thing I can think of is that when you start selling a foul like that, the ref thinks, well, something must not have happened in order for them to sell it this way. And if something really happened, it would look more natural. It would look different. Maybe they need an acting coach. Look, this is LA. we got the best acting coaches in the world. Maybe somebody could get in there and get them to, to sell these fouls a little more believably. The flip side of this coin too is that LAFC had just gotten a penalty. They had scored and were down by one. And now if another penalty were to have been called in, the narrative would have been, oh, look, the league doesn't want LAFC to lose. Yeah, I, I get it. It, it. It's a lose-lose situation for the ref in this case. So just get the call right. And then you don't have to be stuck in the situation, right? Again, it's this whole conversation with VAR. If VAR had stricter, more defined rules to what is and isn't a foul, the letter of the law has so much ambiguity in it to allow for interpretation that, that it puts us in these situations. Like it, it just needs to be some clearer verbiage in the writing of the laws to where it's pretty cut and dry. And you look at it and you go, look, they're onside, they're offside. It's a foul. It's not a foul. And you know, it's hard because, I mean, measuring the weight of contact against somebody is a difficult thing. But in this case, I think everyone, I mean, even Taylor Twelman, for Pete's sake, is saying it was a penalty. I mean, it just, it, it surprises me that all those refs getting together, that they can't just look at a monitor and make the right call. But speaking of injuries, the star man, Latif Blessing, got absolutely rolled over inside the box. Also not a foul. Ends up attempting to come back in the game, doesn't come back in the game. And then in a heartbreaking, speaking of optics, for all of us in the LAFC world, have to see LAFC leave the stadium on crutches, which is absolutely not what we need from our star man. Because once again, with Acosta playing right back, we now have no midfielders left after Janela comes in. And Poncho... You know, the free poncho movement, like I was on the poncho train. He had a great 15 minutes a few weeks ago. He did not have a great game here versus Austin. And again, that dollar amount that he's getting paid, as you brought up previously, you just have to wonder, where's the return on investment with Poncho Janela? Were you as disappointed in what you saw from him after he came in for blessing as I was? Oh, absolutely. I feel like Poncho has good vision where, you know, you see the ideas that he's trying to connect, but the precision in his passing and actually physically putting the ball where it needs to be, it's just not there. You know, like you, I, I see the lanes, like I see, like I'm watching it on television and I see where he was looking to pass the ball. I was like, that would have been a good pass, but the pass itself was terrible. You know, and, it, and then it leads to a turnover. And, it, and it's just, I don't know. I can't stand when our midfield turns over the ball because the way we play, holding on to that possession in the midfield is, is vital to the success of our team. Owning the possession game and maintaining the ability of moving it through the midfield is 
if we don't have that, we struggle. And just, you know, yesterday we, we were just giving up the ball in the midfield. And, and it, it frustrated me too, because when LAFC was down one zero, I didn't see very much pep in their step or fire. And then when LAFC got down two zero, I didn't really see it increase. I didn't see this uptick and desperation of like, Hey guys, we've been down before we can come back and do this. It wasn't until LAFC scored the penalty that all of a sudden now I'm seeing the team fly all over the field and I'm seeing us pressure and I'm seeing us press and I'm seeing like LAFC turn it on. And I'm, I'm just like, where was this for the first 80 minutes of the match? Like, why did it take Carlos getting, cause we were down one zero at one point earlier in the game too. You know, it's, it, it was only once we got within a goal in the last 10 minutes that now they're like, oh, all right, let's, let's turn it up and try and really get that second goal to equalize. The first goal was scored in the 13th minute. Austin didn't get the second goal until the 80th minute. That's a big, big chunk of change between 13 and 80 for this team to have stepped it up. To me, I didn't really see a spark, frankly, until Raito came into the game in the 69th minute. When he came in, all of a sudden, I felt like the momentum changed. And I know we had the possession. We were outpassing them. Austin only completed a little over 70% of their passing. We completed over 80%, which typically spells a victory for us. And again, I, I feel like we had the opportunities, right? We had way more shots on goal. I mean, 18 shots, only seven of them on goal. That's not a great percentage. And seven shots on goal, not a single one of them went in. Now, look, tip your hat to Stuver. I mean, he had a heck of a game. He had a killer you know, boot save versus Mahala on what should have been a clear goal. And, you know, I mean, that was a pretty fantastic save. He had a couple other moments where, you know, he really helped fight and keep that lead for Austin, but it just felt like our offense was breaking down with that final pass. When you're passing at 80%, four out of every five, we needed that fifth pass to break down their defense. And Rudy had himself an amazing game, just getting in passing lanes for us offensively and just and just breaking it down and there were so many of their players that really stepped up for this match something that frankly on the last show we anticipated as well too austin fc had this circled on their calendar this was a big game for them it was just another midweek match for us and we kind of had a humdrum performance because i don't think we took the game really that seriously and frankly i'm okay with that i'm okay with us losing to austin I'm okay with us losing to Columbus as long as we focus on next week. Yeah. Just to, you know, piggyback on how the two different teams were envisioning this match. There were Austin fans after, you know, some of them that were mutual friends with on social media and things like that. Austin fans were saying biggest win in their club's short history. You know, this meant a lot to them. And, and they're um, probably not wrong. This probably is the biggest win they've ever had in club history and and it wasn't even the most important game of the week for LAFC and if LAFC so you know the first four games in the 14 days of May LAFC had two wins a loss and a draw and that loss came as the last game against Colorado after four games at altitude away LAFC came back just shortly after that loss to a team that is strong in the West. 
Austin is, is, is definitely a playoff contender, an MLS cup contender right now, the way that they're playing and they gave us their best shot. But if LAFC lose today, win this weekend against Columbus, win against the galaxy and then tie, it'll be the same stretch in those four, in those four games as it was in the first part, which we had said, after we lost to Colorado, I'm okay with that because LAFC came out. They won one game in the regular season. They won the U S open cup versus Portland. They tied a game and lost a game. And it's like, you know what, for playing eight games in 28 days or 29 days, whatever it's going to end up being, I'm okay with that. You know, if you tell me in those eight games, we're going to have four wins, two draws and two losses. Yeah. I'm okay with that, but we have to come out this weekend and we, and because the, the, Columbus game that's going to be our easiest opponent of the next three right we've got Columbus and then we've got the Galaxy and then we have San Jose right San Jose has been playing much much better since they changed coaches but they're still not a team I'm really concerned about them making a push for the playoffs but the thing that is different about San Jose versus Columbus is that San Jose is kind of like a local rival And in those local rival games, nothing is ever easy. Nothing is ever given. So we know that Columbus crew are struggling right now. That is our easiest, in my opinion, of the next three games. The hardest is going to be the Galaxy game. So if we win on Saturday and then we win against the Galaxy and then we tie against San Jose, that's the same record. The same four 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 match record as we had as the first match, and again, that's four. That'll be four wins, two ties, and two losses in the month of May. I'm okay with that because we're again we're still in the U.S. Open Cup. If we don't win against the Galaxy, what is the one thing that every LAFC fan has been hanging their hat on since 2019? The fact that we eliminated Carson from the playoffs. Yep, Laton's last game, right? I mean, that image gets circled all the time. Every time we play the Galaxy in the Derby. That image of Zlatan walking off with the final score, the 90th minute, like that, that gets that gets passed around all the time. We hang our hat on that win because it was such a significant win in the rivalry. If we don't win this match next weekend, we're not going to hear the end of it for a long time. Then it'll be the Galaxy saying to us, oh, we knocked you out of a competition, right? And it's huge bragging rights on the line, huge bragging rights on the line. So I think that we can't look past Columbus because we have to, we got to handle business first, but I do think that we're going to have a rotated lineup against Columbus. Columbus is struggling. They've had one win in nine matches, you know, yet it's like one win, two ties and uh, six losses in nine matches. They had a horrible April, but if we win and play well, and we rest some of our key players for the U S open cup, because I personally want to take this U S open cup, regardless of who the opponent would have been, I want to take this U S open cup seriously, but the fact that it's the galaxy, even more. So I want our best 11 to be as fresh as possible this upcoming Wednesday against the galaxy. So if that means that we have to rotate players in and play some of our substitute players, our number 12 through 18s, or even call up a couple players from, from the, Las Vegas lights and give them minutes. I'm okay with that too. Right. Because what's most important to me, I feel like is progressing on forward in the U S open cup. I love all those thoughts. Let's save that for segment three of the show. When we get into the next week and our predictions. So let's go ahead and wrap this game up. There were a couple very nice things that happened in this game. Latif blessing prior to that gruesome injury became the all time leader in minutes for LAFC. 
someone who absolutely deserves that honor. Had it not been injury, it probably would be Carlos Vela, but Latif Blessing has not even been a starter for this team for much of the time that he's been here and has still managed to become the club leader in minutes by being as useful, resourceful, and effective as he is week in and week out. Nothing but love to Latif Blessing, my favorite player on this team, many people's fan favorite player, and I loved seeing him get that title of most minutes in club history. In addition, Carlos Vela also became the third fastest player to ever reach 100 points. I wish he had beaten Robbie Keane because he's a player that I absolutely despise because not only his Carson ties, but he was also a Tottenham Hotspur, which is a name that I don't even like saying. I, I choke up a little bit just hearing that word. It, it stirs up such deep emotions of hatred inside me. And uh, he is a player that I loved to root against. And the fact that Vela didn't beat him bothers me. But Carlos Vela still became the third fastest player in MLS history. Despite, I don't know if you saw, Chris, this week, the numbers came out for player salaries. Carlos Vela is not even a top five anymore. Shakiri is now the number one overall player, and Carlos is down at like seventh or eighth on the list now. I have a theory as to why that is. His contract is only half. So it's, it's half the value of what the whole season is. You know, so he's, he's only here until June. And so if he was to be here for a whole, a whole year under the same contract structure that he had, it might have then been closer to for whatever it is, 4.5 or $5 million. That's fair. I'll give you that. Yeah, look, it's an L. Let's just, let's just move on. There were some post-game conversations, speaking of Carlos Vela, that was interesting. Uh, he was asked about his contract, and he said, until it's signed, you don't have nothing for sure, which means the contract's not signed. He went on to say that you know he feels he and the club are reaching an agreement and are progressing toward it. But frankly, that feels like, like we're moving the conversation way back to before Tom Bogert's reporting that it was a done deal and signed. So are you concerned at all? I mean, Vela did go on to say that, you know, like I always say, I'm really happy here. I love to play in L.A. I love to play in the stadium with these fans. If it's in my hands, for sure, I will be here. I will help this club to win a trophy. For my part, I'm doing my stuff. We will see how it will end, but I think it will be a little bit better. Any red flags and any of that for you in concerns with the Carlos Vela contract? No. You know what? I think that Carlos can contribute, right? We talked about this a couple, uh, maybe it was episode last or the one before last, but he can contribute in ways that may not be just the dominant scoring force, but he's going to be a respected scorer and he's going to take that consideration from, uh, from defenders and it's going to open up opportunities for other players. And um, just because Carlos re-signs a contract doesn't mean that the club and Carlos are going to agree to pay him the same amount of money that he was getting on his original contract. He could agree to resign and get paid less. And maybe Carlos is okay with that because Carlos is willing to take less because he wants to be in a place where he's happy, where his wife is happy, where he can raise his kids and he can, you know, that, that work-life balance and, and the culture. And so maybe that is part of, you know, what's being negotiated. That statue. There at the north end, and if hey, if he gets a trophy for LAFC and they want to give him a statue, by all means, like I'm okay with that too. You so know, that raises but, the question. So what if what if Carlos leaves in June, contract doesn't work out, 
Carlos moves on, goes back to Spain, goes wherever. And this is this is the end of Carlos Vela in LAFC. Has he earned the statue? I think that it would it would have to be based on what happens over the next like five years. You know, like if over you really the think next five th- more years out of Vela, I don't think he has five more years. No, 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 no. I'm saying you had said that, that Carlos is gone. Does he deserve a statue? And I'm saying it would be dependent on what happens over the next five years. If we were to win an MLS Cup, go on and play in the CONCA Champions League and, and win the CONCA Champions League without Carlos, I think that that shows that his presence here with this club was not as significant as some would say. But if Carlos leaves and then the club continues to not produce trophies and we we end up being you know a team that just can't put it through I think that then you then look back on the time with Carlos and you then appreciate it more and you have a fonder look at what his time was when he was here and you then value it higher yeah yeah I I I think third fastest player ever to 100 points he's earned the trophy even if he were to hang it up tomorrow but hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully we get at least another year and a half. I cannot see any way he doesn't finish out the season, at least with LAFC. And at that point, you might as well just add him on for one more year. To me, having a player that wants to be here is very important. You can see like when Brian Rodriguez didn't want to be here, you could tell in his body language. You could tell in the effect that it was causing in the locker room. If Carlos wants to be here, like if you're the captain of your club wants to be here and he can still contribute, that to me is extremely important. I want to make this deal work because the person that I'm looking to lead my club wants to be here. Amen. Well, with that, I think we'll go ahead and wrap it up for the first segment of the show. We're going to be right back after a quick break with this week's opponent correspondent for the Columbus crew. This is Will Koontz, and you're listening to the Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. All right, and we're back from break. And this week, our opponent correspondent helping us out to preview this upcoming weekend against Columbus Crew is Blake Eshelman. He is a, the host of MLS Gone Wild, and you can follow MLS Gone Wild at MLS Gone Wild. Blake, thank you very much for coming on the show. Of course, man. It's an honor to be on the show. I appreciate it, man. So, you know, some of our listeners may not know, but MLS Gone Wild is not a Columbus Crew show. It is a show that covers the MLS as a league. So please tell us a little bit about this, how you got started, how it's been going, some of the key things and what fans, if they were interested to come to your website and find a little bit about the MLS as a whole, or if they wanted to listen to the LAFC coverage, how they could go about doing that. Yeah. So I'm Blake. I'm the the host of the MLS Gone Wild podcast, born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. So, you know, that's partially the reason I'm on here is because I'm a diehard black and gold Columbus crew fan. I played for their youth teams growing up. And once the pandemic hit in 2020, you know, I've loved MLS for a really long time. I've gone to all-star games. I've attended matches in a bunch of different cities, but I thought to myself, well, now I have all this extra time. How can I be productive with this time and get creative about something that I love? And instead of just covering just the Columbus Crows, like, let me cover the entire league. And I started out with a couple of buddies. It was really fun. And then the season shut down and we're like, oh, we got to start getting interviews because it's hard to crank out content like that really creatively. Right. So I had guys like Alexi Law and big names for USMNT, Justin Mapp. Those are some of our first guys. Had some guys from USL. That was just kind of our foot in the door. And then 2021 happened and it was just me and one other co-host and we were 
knocking out interviews, Cole Bassett, Tanner Testman, Brandon Aronson, some of the brightest young stars in the league, Aiden Morris, Columbus Crews, Aiden Morris, who I'm sure we'll talk about later in the episode. And here we are in 2022. It's just me and it's been difficult, but I've had a really good time doing it. I kicked off the year by doing an MLS Super Draft series where I interviewed three or four of the top draft picks in this MLS Super Draft. And then I interviewed Tom Bogart to start the year, and then four of the best players, young players in the league, including Keaton Parks, Dewan Jones, Ben Bender for Charlotte FC, who's been on a tear, Nathan Harriel. So uh, it's it's been awesome, man. It's been a blessing. Last night on my way home from dinner, we were talking about it pre-podcast. I got a follow on my personal account, which kind of threw me off guard. Jam Curtain with the verified sticker next to it. And I was like, oh, hmm. All right. That's cool. And then two minutes later, as my girlfriend's still driving me home, I get a DM and you know, we don't do these podcasts to get the recognition. We do it because it's something we love. We do it because it's something that we really care about and we're passionate about. And to get that kind of reassurance and that kind of credit and somebody, you know, big names are watching, big names are listening, big names care about what we're doing and that we're growing the game. And that's all I'm here to do is to help grow the game in America, help grow MLS, help promote this game and gain more fans. So if you like that whole spiel I just gave you, you guys can listen to us anywhere. You guys listen to podcasts, mainly Apple, Spotify, or literally wherever, Stitcher, Anchor, wherever you guys listen. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram. I'm very active on Twitter, not so much Instagram, but at MLS Gone Wild on both of those. So if you liked what I just said, go check it out. Yeah, and it's it's great content, right? Like I, I know that there's a lot of times, you know, as a fan of LAFC, my my viewpoint is is fairly narrow and because I follow this club so closely, but, you know, it's nice having a show where it's a general broad overview and it's not necessarily the most publicized you know you could go to the the sports coverage of the major networks and things like that but it's nice having a regular a regular fans point of view from time to time especially when you know I do I do feel that the MLS Gone Wild content is is fairly strong and it's a good listen right I appreciate that and for anybody that's listening I do put out weekly power rankings and LAFC fell off the top tier this week I'm I know, sorry I know Y'all oh got two my chances God. this week you know, to get to the top again okay I you know what though but after that after the uh performance in Colorado you know it uh it might have been a little deserved but you know what we talked uh we talked a little bit about it in this last episode uh for the match leading up to Austin but it's you know heavy legs things like that four games in 14 days plus now we've got another four games in 14 days so it's We'll see. It's just one of those things, but we'll get back. I have a feeling we'll get back on those power rankings at some point. And when they do, we'll hit that retweet button real hard on our shoulder, shoulder podcast. Uh, you're still um, in the top 10. You're just not number one anymore. I know. I, but we'll get there. We'll get there. But uh, anyways, let's talk a little bit about the Columbus crew, you know, leading into the off season, as every team does, there's some additions and departures. Some of the more noteworthy additions this season, Ghanaian midfielder Yaya Boa and Australian defender Milos Deganik. Can you talk to us about those two players and what they've brought to the club so far in the early part of the season? Yeah, Yaya Boa was purchased for two mil from Wilsaw Krakow, and he's made 11 appearances, eight starts, 604 minutes, not much in terms of offensive production. He does have one assist, no goals on the season. But in those eight starts, he has provided some dynamic play on the right side, primarily on the wings. He's not as fast as our Luis Diaz is or Derek Etienne Jr. He's not so much a burner, but he's more technical, quick on the ball. He can beat one or two players. Unfortunately, he really hasn't found his feet quite yet. He actually was left out of the starting 11 last week, and Derek Etienne started out right, Zellerand started out left. But 
he is another dynamic winger that we have, and we have a lot of them. Competition in that position is strong, and he was a big purchase. So we expect big things from him. We're a third of the way through the season. We really haven't seen that yet, but things can change quickly, you know. Absolutely. And uh, then the Australian defender, Milos Degenik. So he came from Red Star Belgrade for a free transfer, nine appearances, eight starts, 686 minutes. I really liked this on paper when I first saw it. He's a guy that is going to be, I think Australia is in a World Cup playoff to actually get into the World Cup. So he's currently playing for a spot on the Australian team who's hopefully going to play in the world cup. So obviously he's coming in here, motivated, trying to prove that he's worthy to play in the world cup in Qatar in 2022. He did go down with a knock a couple of weeks ago, but he was on the bench this past weekend in our loss to NYCFC. He replaced Vito Warmgore who left last off season and he's been a step up, but since then we've brought in veteran. We didn't bring him in. He's always been here. Josh Williams, who was the starter in the 2020 uh, MLS cup and Josh Williams has done a phenomenal job, but I think Milos Degenek, when he is fully 100% healthy, we could see him start and go the full 90 this weekend against LAFC. But him and Jonathan Mensa are a really good pairing. They complement each other well, both really big guys. They communicate well. I really like that pairing back there. Right on. And in addition to the additions, there were some departures. Uh, I think the most notable one that just happened recently over the last few weeks was U.S. men's national team player Joshi Zardes goes from Columbus Crew to the Colorado Rapids. You know, Joshi had been in and out of form, I guess, as of recent. Can you talk to us about his time in at Columbus and why this move was right at this time for him to go to Colorado? First things first, I want to start this out that he's a really good soccer player, but he's an even better person. Phenomenal ambassador for the city of Columbus. A lot of volunteer work, a lot of stuff with Nationwide Children's Hospital there in Columbus. So phenomenal person overall. So shout out to Colorado for seeing his character, seeing his potential both on and off the field for their community and bringing him in. And also shout out to Giassi. He netted his first goal against you guys last weekend on a PK. And then Rubio got the, uh, the, the second PK. But anyway, back to Giassi, man. Giassi's, he's a pretty inconsistent striker. When he's hot, he's hot. Uh, he's really, really dangerous in the box. With his runs, his finishing is really questionable. We've seen it time and time again, missing things that, missing shots, missing goals that, we would think would be sitters and he just kind of lacks the technical ability to cleanly finish a ball in front of the net. He's really good in the air. I made a bet preseason with one of my buddies that he was going to score over the 11 and a half line that I set. I think he's got two right now, one for the crew and one for Colorado. So he's got a ways to go, but I think that it hurts the crew a little bit. We still have Miguel Barry there. Eric Hurtado has shown a little bit of improvement off the bench from what we saw from him last year. But yeah, it kind of hurts seeing Giassi go just because we know how much of a leader he was, how good of a person he was. But I wish him nothing but the best going forward. Another player who is a young man, a 22-year-old Abubakar Keita, who had made 38 appearances for the Columbus crew. He also was sold to the Colorado Rapids for $300,000 of uh, Garber Bucks. So can you talk about that move and how that transpired and, and how that move has left your team? It really hasn't affected us too much defensively, to be honest. Like I said, we also got rid of Vito Warmhorse. So we got rid of two center backs, but we replaced them with Daganek and Jaleel Anibaba, who's literally only played a minute this season. So hasn't seen a lot of action, but he is a backup there. We also drafted a number of guys in the MLS Super Draft. Guy I interviewed preseason, Jacob Erlinson. He's playing for Crew 2 right now. Philip Quinton out of Notre Dame drafted him. So those guys are at our disposal. 
if we need them back there. But Abubakar Keita was a homegrown center back. He made some mistakes. He wasn't the cleanest on the ball. He looked like he may have lacked a little confidence, but maybe lacking confidence actually looks like lacking experience. And you kind of need to grow into your game when you're a young homegrown player, right? So although it doesn't necessarily hurt us, you also hate to see a homegrown go, but and he really hasn't got much run in Colorado. So I hope that changes. Yes, absolutely. So current form right now, Columbus is sitting 10th in the East, three wins, four draws, four losses. They had a little bit of a tough April. They had one win, one draw, and four losses, one of them being in the U.S. Open Cup with a loss to the uh, USL Championship side, Detroit City FC. What were some of the things that went wrong in April, and what are some of the things needed to right this ship? It was a tragic, tragic April. I mean, I mean, nothing went right. We have right now one win in the last nine competitive matches, including that Detroit City FC loss in the U.S. Open Cup. So one win in eight MLS matches, that's not great. And in those eight MLS matches, we've been shut out five times. So going back to that Giassi point, yeah, maybe it does hurt, but he also wasn't the one producing either. So we just lack that, that finisher in front of net. And, you know, early in the season, although we were beating teams that were down to 10 men, it was nice to see because we played some pretty football at that point. But Derek Etienne Jr. was split out left and Lucas Elarion was primarily playing the 10, there was a lot of interchange. Lucas Elarion had a player to actually play with. And since then, it's just, Zellerion went down. We inverted the triangle. So we play with now one six, Artur, and then dual eights. And then Zellerion just came back from injury and now he's split left. And we saw that just last game. And we'll probably see it again against LAFC, to be honest with you. But Zellerion doesn't need to be isolated to one side of the pitch. If he's going to be lined up on, per se, that left wing spot, I don't want him there. I want him there on paper, but I want him floating in between the lines, finding the game. He's one of the best number 10s in the league. So what's went wrong is just the same thing that crew always do. It's just kind of the same patterns of play. It's kind of stagnant. We work the ball from side to side. Granted, you know, patience is a virtue sometimes in soccer, and you're waiting for those moments, but It seems that when the crew have found those moments, because honestly we have, because we're fourth in the league and passes into the penalty area with 117. So we're getting the ball into the PK spot and in, and we're fifth in MLS in total shots at 156, but where it goes completely off the rails from there. Okay. So we're fifth in MLS in total shots. We're 20th in MLS and shots on target. 26% of our shots are on target. And that is damn near. And that is nearly dead last in MLS. So we're getting in spots. We're not finishing them. You know, it kind of reminds me of LAFC season last year where, you know, we were just in the right spots a lot of times, but you just couldn't get the ball on frame. And those are, those are frustrating spots to be in because you can see that the opportunities are there, but the, the follow through and the finish is just not what's getting you over the hump. Yeah. And when you look at, I'm a big fan of expected goals because and expected goals and expected all that. Our expected goal differential is plus 4.1, and that's fourth in the East, which is pretty good. You know, you're outperforming your opponents and based on not what's actually happening, based on what's expected to happen. So that's good. But then we're 19th in all of MLS and goals minus expected goals. So we're completely underperforming 
in front of the net. That's a frustrating place to be. Talk to us a little bit about some of the role players on your team. I mean, obviously, as a fan of the MLS, you're going to know some of the more marquee names on your squad. Lucas Zellerion, obviously, is one of the star players on your squad. Of course, there's also Darlington Nagby, Pedro Santos, and Arthur. But tell us about some of these role players that we should be aware of and what they bring to your squad. Yeah, so before we move to the other role players, I will talk about one of the other departures that happened, Valenzuela who was our starter for the last three, four, five years for the Columbus Crew, starting left back, was sold in this past offseason. And now we have Pedro Santos, who I said earlier, we have a bunch of wingers. Luckily, he's versatile. He's been awesome for the Columbus Crew this year. So when I talk about a role player, he's filled into this role and he's done an extremely good job. He's been, you know, he's been very level-headed about being open to this change and kind of inviting the change and thriving in this in the environment that he's in now. And he's one of the top players in MLS and progressive passes. And one thing that I've been so impressed with Pedro is a couple minutes ago, I touched on the Columbus crew playing the same patterns of play. It's just kind of stale. Pedro Santos is trying to find Lucas Elarion at the 10 all the time, floating in between the back line and the midfield, trying to find those half spaces. He's trying to find our striker, whoever that is. So Pedro is not always playing it down the line into space to Derek Etienne Jr. or whoever the winger is on the same side. He's not playing it back to rotate. When he gets the ball, he's going forward. He is a left back with an attacking mindset. And so that's been huge. And so I would consider Pedro a role player, but you guys know about him. One other guy that's that's really filled and I think that's impressed me. It's a guy that came in this offseason on loan from Spain, James Igbekime. He's been one of our... Uh, dual eighth midfield. He's been competing with Aiden Morris for playing time. And James Igbekeme has been awesome. And the past couple games, when we inverted that triangle, played with the six and du- dual eights, he's played alongside Darlington Nagby. James Igbekeme is dynamic, quick on the ball, strong on the ball. He's got really, really good feet. Uh, he loves to go forward, but he's also really clean in possession. Uh, and he, he's really good in tight spaces, which Caleb Porter actually came out either last week or the week before, talking about selection. Why did you select James Igbekeme over Aiden Morris in the match against NYCFC, which is on a small field, but we won't get into that. And so the spaces are obviously going to be tighter. And the coaching staff figured that James Igbekeme, because of his technical ability, is going to be cleaner on the ball in tight spaces under that NYCFC pressure. So James Igbekeme has been really, really good for the Columbus crew so far this season. And then just just looking down the line, did did you mention you guys knowing Derek Etienne Jr.? I mean, I didn't mention him in my list of people that we are afraid of, but I mean, by all means, we can all talk about Derek Etienne Jr. Why not? Oh, man, Derek Etienne Jr., who is only making, because the MLSPA salary numbers came out yesterday, $175,000, which is, he's literally our least paid winger on the team, and he's got three goals and four assists, and he's looked like one of our or has looked like our most dangerous player outside of Lucas Ilarion. Derek Etienne Jr. has been phenomenal. He looks like he's got his swagger back. He's celebrating after every goal. He's making those dangerous runs all the time. He's frustrated when he's not getting the ball played into those spaces. He's hungry. He wants more this season. And Derek Etienne Jr. has been really, really good. Another guy I can't talk highly enough about is, is Aiden Morris. He's been awesome. He started in the 2020 MLS Cup for us. Shut down Nico Ladero in that match, put him in his pocket. And unfortunately last year he went out with an injury torn ACL a couple games into the season. I believe it was a CCL match freak off the ball torn ACL. And he's come back this season stronger than ever started a couple matches has played 
a lot for crew too. So he's getting those consistent minutes. They are continuing to develop, get back into game fitness. But when he stepped on the field for the first team, he's, he's looked really good. He hasn't missed a beat. He's aggressive. He's a ball hound. I mean, he's, he's hunting everything in the midfield and he's, he's really a joy to watch. The next step for him is the offensive piece. It's okay. I'm going to win the ball back and now, okay, we, we got to go, you know, where's that next pass? Just uh, developing that part of his offensive game because defensively and understanding space and tracking, he's amazing. Looking forward to this weekend. Um, what are some of the expectations that you think are going to happen for the match this weekend for LAFC versus Columbus? This one's interesting. So we haven't mentioned it yet, which is surprising. The Columbus crew and LAFC have played two times, both times ending in LAFC victories. The first one back in 2018 was a two nil victory. And then in 2019, you guys beat us in Columbus three nil. Not great. So we haven't scored a goal on LAFC. So first of all, I hope that changes for the Columbus crew, whether it's whether we win. I don't know. I'm sure we'll get into predictions later. But one of the biggest questions I have is, you know, what's the crew style of play going to be? Are we going to see Lucas Ilarion out left? Are we going to see him more centrally? Obviously, I hope it's more centrally. I don't want him isolated. But I think the thing that's interesting is the Columbus crew so far this season through 11 matches had 51.9 possession on average. In the last four matches, they've had 40.5 possession. That's down 11.4%. A couple matches have been in the like mid to upper 30s. So the Columbus crew who are usually a very ball dominant team. And you see that in that side to side passing. Patience is a virtue. Caleb Porter ball type model. But recently we've been kind of sitting back and looking for the counter. And although there's a lot of teams in this league that are really good at countering, you look at the Philadelphia Union, you look at FC Dallas who sit in a really compact and then just break on teams. The Columbus crew don't have the personnel to really do that. So whereas I understand the tactic, I don't think that we have the right folks to be deploying that tactic. If we have that, we need two burner wingers on the wing. So start Derek Etienne Jr. out left, start Luis Diaz out right. And then I guess it's Miguel Barry up top, but Lucas Elleron has to be running that 10 spot. So I think that's going to be something interesting to look at because LA is always a very ball dominant team home and away. So I'll be interested to see how the possession battle plays out and how the Columbus crew play that into their advantage. Do they sit back and how does their counter look? And uh, you know, you mentioned your prediction. What do you predict to be the scoreline for this weekend? Mm, man is so you guys have an interesting week, right? You guys play Austin. You guys, you guys are in LA tonight, right? Yeah, we're playing Austin in LA tonight. Okay, so you're playing Austin tonight, and then you guys have us turn around two days later in Columbus, completely different time zone, right? What is it, four hours? Uh, three, three hour three time hours. Three hours, okay, three hour time difference. So there's a lot going against you guys. Okay? Well, and then we have the Galaxy match next uh, Tuesday in the right. US Open Cup. So you have to wonder, what's rotation going to look like, okay? Because you guys have the game tonight, and then this weekend's match against the Columbus crew. And then you turn around and have El Trafico in a, in a domestic tournament. So where do you prioritize your team? Which players do you give rest to? Do you give rest to players this weekend? I'll be interested to see how that goes. That's something to look out for when the lineups drop, but my prediction, the Columbus crew are three and two at home. LAFC are three and two away. So it's pretty even there. You guys have beat us twice. Oh man. It's, it's, Two one LAFC. You know, I, I I do think that LAFC is going to come out and try to look to make a statement tonight against Austin. So I do expect to see a normal starting eleven, and I do think that especially having the loss earlier 
this season in Carson against the Galaxy that and not having a win at Dignity Health Sports Park, that it's a priority for A, us to move on in the U.S. Open Cup, regardless of opponent. But on top of that, the fact that it is the Galaxy, we want to make a statement there too and get that monkey off our back and finally have that victory at Galaxy Stadium. So I do think that you are going to see a heavy load of rotation this upcoming weekend in Columbus. And because of that, I'm expecting it would be a draw, if not maybe even an LAFC loss, just because they have their eyes set on different priorities. You guys are pretty deep, though. So the rotation doesn't necessarily hurt you guys. One thing I did take note of prior to hopping on this podcast was bench production. How many goals are being scored by bench players? For you guys, you guys got Ryan Hollingshead, Masovsky. You guys have how many off the bench? Eight or nine goals I think it's off the nine, bench? Nine goals off the bench. The Columbus crew have three. We're not the deepest in, in attack. So granted, you guys go for the battle of the top of the West tonight, and I think you guys will win that game. But even if you guys do have to rotate, you guys can still field a pretty competitive squad. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's definitely something that we haven't always had is that bench production. And we're just hoping that it maintains itself this season. That's definitely not something that every team is going to have all season long. It's something that you just have to mentally prepare for. And, and we're just hoping that we get to have it for the remainder of the season. Let us know what your expectations are for the Columbus crew as a whole for the season. Do you feel that this team has what it takes to push for that playoff spot? Do you feel that there's even a run that could be made? I mean, again, you know, 2020 MLS Cup, 2021 Campionas Cup winners. I mean, there is a certain level of winning bloodline in this club. So you know that they have what it takes. Yeah, there's quality in this roster. There is a winning mentality in this roster. They just got to get on a roll, man. Strikers are a huge part of soccer. You know, you got to put the ball in the back of the net. So we need Miguel Barry to get confident. We need to probably sign another starting caliber striker in the summer when the, I believe it's the July transfer window opens. We need to sign a starting caliber striker as for expectations for this club. We will make the playoffs this year. It's going to be tight. It was tight last year. We sit 10th. Now we're a third of the way through the season. A lot of the underlying stats, the, they suggest that we are a pretty good team. We're just not finishing the goals. All those stats I read to you earlier shots, shots on target, expected goal differential, all those things are, you know, we're doing the right things up until the 18 and we're defending well, we're just not scoring goals and we can't win road. We got to find ways to get points on the road and we have to make lower.com field a fortress. So I think at some point this season, we will turn it around. I don't know if this match against LAFC or even the next match is going to be that maybe we start fresh in June and go from there, but I do expect this team to compete for a playoff spot. And I do expect the Columbus crew to make the 2022 MLS playoffs. One thing I'm surprised you didn't ask me about was my thoughts on Caleb Porter. There's been a lot of chatter on Columbus crew Twitter about Caleb Porter, Caleb Porter in Caleb Porter out. Same is going on with Peter Vermees and sporting Kansas city Two coaches that have been rather successful in MLS are having really bad years. And this is the second really bad year for Caleb Porter. A lot of questions. The Haslam's are the owners of the Columbus crew. They're also the owners of the Cleveland Browns. They've shown they have no problem firing coaches. We've had countless numbers of coaches for the Cleveland Browns since they took over ownership. Do I think that the Haslam's are going to fire Caleb Porter before the end of the season? Do I want it to happen? 
kind of because something has to change. And I, like I said, I think that we have the right players on this team. I think that we have really quality players, but I don't think that we're going to fire Kayla Porter right now. I don't think we're going to fire Kayla Porter this season. We may see it happen in the offseason if all goes wrong in this offseason. You know, I think that, uh, you know, when you look at a coach and the body of work that that, that coach has done with your club and the success that he had had in 2020 and the, the early success in 2021 with the Campionas Cup, I mean, missing the MLS playoffs last year, I think that if you were to come back and make that playoff and make that run, I think that that would be enough for him to solidify his job. But yeah, if you miss the playoffs two years in a row, then, you know, yeah, by all means, I think that that is definitely something that has to be looked at. And, you know, it's, it's hard, right? Cause we looked at last season with Bob Bradley uh, and it was, there was a lot of fans who were not happy with Bob Bradley. And there was that Bob in Bob out talk also. And um, it ended up just being something that was mutually agreed upon by both parties and, you know, it's hard because I think that there was a lot of people that felt that Bob could still do a good job. But at the same time, too, there were people that were not comfortable with Steve Terundolo and look at the job that he's done since he's come in, too. So it's phenomenal, uh, job, man. But uh, I appreciate your time. Again, our opponent correspondent for this week has been Blake Eshelman. He is well, the founder of MLS Gone Wild, who covers all of the MLS. You can follow them at MLS Gone Wild on social media. You know, and in addition, he is a Columbus Crew fan at heart. So, uh, you know, the content for the league is going to be very good, but it's especially going to be good for the Columbus Crew. So again, Blake, thank you very much for coming on our show. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Of course, man. And go crew. And we'll be right back from this with our predictions for the match. Yo, this is Shavo from System of a Down, and you're listening to Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. All right, Chris, Blake's got us all prepped up for our opinions of Columbus Crew. We touched on it a little bit earlier, so but now I'm going to give you a chance to unload your full thoughts. What do you think is going to happen this weekend when LAFC heads off to the great state of Ohio to take on the crew? I think that LAFC is going to win. I think that LAFC is going to come out, and th- because if you don't win, let's just go over this. If you do not win, that's three losses in a row. And what is the momentum like leading into the match against the Galaxy? It's not going to be great. If you tie, that still doesn't show a lot because this is a team that's struggling. This is a team that is not in form. They're going to be missing a, a, a player or two. I think that this is an opportunity for us to capitalize and pick up momentum leading into a very big game for us. LAFC is going to win because they are not going to fall into this three-game skid. They understand that they want to start on the right foot and have as best a chance as possible to win. The only thing that I am concerned with, and it's not that such a big concern, but it's the only thing that is making me not as as confident as of everything is the fact that I do feel that the best thing to do is to rotate your players and to have some of the bench or role players get more minutes than our marquee starters because I want our marquee starters to be fresh and ready for the Galaxy game in the U.S. Open Cup. So because of that, you know, we're going to have, it's going to be a grind. It's going to be a, I feel like it's going to be a close match. It's going to be a grind. It's going to be one nil two one LAFC win. Perfect. I'm all right with that. Here are my thoughts on this game. Again, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. If we drop this game, Columbus is obviously in terrible form. 
and and to go in there and take an L would look bad. But just as you said that it is important that this team build momentum going into the Derby next week, if we end up dropping this game on the weekend, does that not also create a sense of urgency around this game? And perhaps players would be pressing to step up and perform in this match. I mean, I feel like the psychological battle can go both ways. And that's where you really trust a head coach and a coaching staff and all the player personnel people around this team to rally them and have them ready for Wednesday. I personally, I would be perfectly fine with the entire Las Vegas lights roster going out and facing the crew. I I mean, I think the way the crew are performing, the lights give them a run for their money, rest the entire starting 11 for Wednesday's game. Don't let them see a minute in the match, maybe 10, 15 minutes of garbage time late on just to get a run out, but not even worth it. I, I would be fine with all the key players resting in this match and putting the likes of a Danny Trejo and, and a Cal Jennings out there and, and let them have a game. Tony Leone, God deserves a start. Give him a start. You know, I mean, you could put Christian Torres, you name it, put them all out there in Columbus. And, and I'd be perfectly fine with just letting that go and focusing on Wednesday. It's like I said on the last show. In 10 years, looking back, this will be one of the greatest months in LAFC history if all we do is win at Dignity Health Sports Park. We could lose all three of these games preceding it. We could lose to San Jose afterwards. And in 10 years, all anyone is going to remember is LAFC knocking the Galaxy out of the U.S. Open Cup. And if it means we sacrifice a potential chance at Supporters' Shield, which, by the way, I don't think it does. I still think this club, especially once they add another DP, fill in a couple of these roster spots, potentially a Cellini shows up to give us some reinforcement across that back line as well, too. I still think this club, even if they drop Columbus and drop San Jose, have a chance to go on and win a Supporters' Shield Regardless, there's so much season left. We're we're barely a quarter of the way through the year. We're basically tied for number one in the league right now. Goal differential, the only thing separating us and Austin at this moment. I'm fine if this team drops points versus Columbus. I'm fine if this team drops points versus San Jose. I will not be fine if we go into Dignity Health Sports Park and walk out with a loss. I will not be okay with that. Right. And and the entire trajectory of this current roster, this coaching staff this season, it is all hinged on that game on Wednesday. There are so many eggs in that basket that I don't care what happens versus Columbus. Now, that being said, I still think we should smoke Columbus because they're not a good team. They played a lot of road games. Uh, Their last home game was a win versus D.C. United. They play particularly well at home. So as poor a form as they have been in, it's a lot of road games that they've lost. They still play particularly well at home. And so I I wouldn't be surprised if we go in there and we play a complete squad rotation and they walk away with a 2-1-3-2 victory. I would like to see us start scoring some goals. Uh, It's back-to-back games in which, you know, we have no goals from open play. We have one goal from a penalty, but no goals from open play. And I, I would like to see some of these guys starting to find their shooting boots. Mahala especially is someone who was really bright at the start of this season, but has struggled to find the back of the net over the course of these past couple games, despite being in some really great spots and having some killer opportunities. Raito, I want to see him get healthy and get moving again and see him find the back of the net as well, too. But I again, like, I don't care what happens versus Columbus. Don't care at all. All I care about 
is next Wednesday. That's the only thing that matters right now over the course of these next three games to me. I agree. I think that uh, Wednesday is a huge match, which is sad to say. Like, I feel like the amount of pressure that just continues to build for like if we had already won, this would be a significant match because it's a U.S. Open Cup match, regardless of opponent. But the fact that we haven't won, it just continues to build and add this more pressure to where eventually we're going to get to the point where we're like, look, we just got to get, we just got to do it, dude. We just got to finally get this win and get it over with so that we can move on and stop putting it on a pedestal that like, we have to get this win. Like we have to get this win because it's our first one, you know, but I would rather us being like, we have to get this win because we want to win the U S open cup. I wish that that was our incentive, you know, to say, I want to hold and hoist the U S open cup, make that our first trophy as a, as a club and an organization, win it in our fifth year. But instead, we're sitting here and we're saying we have to win this game because we haven't done it yet and we need to get this monkey off our back. I, I completely agree. It, it, it's disappointing that it's taken us five years. But again, the conversation is always going to be you haven't beat them there until you beat them there. And then the conversation can move on. And, and all of us are ready for that conversation to move on. But if LAFC goes in there next Wednesday and takes an L, I... I just, you know, the fuel to the Carson fire with all the smack talk and drama and all that. I didn't even tell you because I raced in the door to hop on the pod, but I'm driving home from work today. And this person pulls up behind me and starts yelling and, and making a bunch of gestures at me. And I had no idea why this person was yelling and screaming at me. And so I rolled down my window. And what happened next was one of the most vitriolic, homophobic tirades from a Carson fan to me about everything nasty one could possibly say about LAFC and every homophobic slur in the book was thrown at me as I was driving home today. And I just so happened to have a pride flag sitting next to me in the front seat of my car. And rather than say anything back to this guy, I just pulled up my little pride flag and waved it real quick, just kind of smiled and rolled up my window. At which point this person started throwing every single thing in their car at me and proceeded to follow me for like the next three miles, just hurling trash out their window at my car because they were so angry to be at a red light behind somebody with an LAFC and a 3252 sticker on the back of their car. And it's this kind of stuff that I just, I hate that they have the bragging rights in this because they do things like this that are so so lame right like there's absolutely no reason to disagree with something that's on the back of somebody's car and, and to go off in the manner in which this person in a black bmw felt like they needed to go off against me and and say horrible horrible things and, and it's just moments like that that i want to win the culture war here in los angeles and that starts with winning on the pitch because as long as they have those little victories to hold over us, you've never beaten us here in Carson. It just fuels those people to continue to go off the manner in which this person decided to go off on me today. And, you know, I, I hope that person finds some peace and, and find some understanding and stop saying the horrible things that they said to me. But it's moments like that that just make these games all that much more important to me. Because I know that as much as it shouldn't be, that's very reminiscent of the interactions between these fan bases, right? Where someone sees a bumper sticker on someone's car and feels the need to then start yelling horrible, horrible things at a random person that they know nothing about. 
but I'm sure if this guy and I met at a bar somewhere, we probably would have had a great conversation and it never would have devolved into the kind of vitriol that happened to me today. But it's just moments like that that make these games that much more important. Every time there's these incidents off the field, it's going to take both of these teams coming down to earth a little bit before this normalizes, right? And us getting that win there, to me, is that next step in this whole thing just de-escalating because it's gotten silly. People are getting beat up, cars getting smashed, people having breakdowns like this in public. All that stuff just needs to go away. Let's just get this back to football, man. And that's what I'd like to see happen in this upcoming game. Get back to football. Play the kind of LAFC game without these optics, without this pressure, without this monkey of we've never won there. To keep fueling this fire and keeping this growing, I would just like to see it return to a battle of football versus football for the heart of the city. It'll get there. It'll get there. And, you know, 20 years from now, when we look back, hopefully it'll be better, you know, and, and hopefully the rivalry will, will just be a rivalry in the stands and on the pitch and not on, on Roscoe Boulevard as you're coming home from work. La- Laurel Canyon. It was on Laurel Canyon right there as I'm approaching the 101, leaving Studio City there. I'm on Laurel Canyon and, and homeboy in a black BMW decided to have a meltdown. He was probably having a bad day, but uh, not, much, not a nice dude, person. How do you have that much trash in your car? Right. It was like, I don't know. Like I, one of them was like one of those glass Starbucks, like Frappuccino bottles, like that hit my car and put a big old dent in it. And thankfully I have a terrible car, so it doesn't really matter. But like over someone roots for a different team, like, and, and the stuff this person was saying was just, was just terrible, man. Just terrible. I wow. just don't get it. I just don't get it, man. Grow up, people. All right, get over it. But I think that about that that about wraps it up for today. Do you have a- any other thoughts on this upcoming week, Chris, of of our game versus the crew or our upcoming game against Carson? Uh, no, just you know what? Don't be discouraged. Get out. Wear your colors. Represent your club. Look for uh, opportunities to sport, and and uh, you know it's going to be a great week, dude. Next Wednesday, one week from yesterday. It's it's going to be a great week, dude. Next Wednesday is going to be a party. Thursday, don't plan on going into work. Just call out Friday too. Forget it, you know. And then we've got Sunday versus and then we've got the the weekend against San Jose. And that's going to be at home Saturday, May 28th, right? So it's like I might as well just start the weekend right, you know. Gal LFC is going to beat the Galaxy on Wednesday. Call call out of work Thursday and just at that point just say, "Well, you know, I'm just don't go into work Friday, and then you have the game at three o'clock on Saturday. I, I, and we're just gonna make it one big party. You heard it here first. Wednesday is the new Friday. I'm, I love I'm, it. I'm, I'm gonna take it off. I'll, I'll, t- I'll take it off. Oh, I'll be there. Off. I'll be there in Carson. I already got my tickets. I'll be there. Right on. I'll be, I'll be busting in with the rest of the crazies and having a good time and be up in our normal section, whooping and hollering the whole time because that's what we do. Win, lose, tie, doesn't matter. 3252 is going to 3252. That's what we're going to do. But, you know, for all of us that have put so much time and energy and money and emotion and and physical support into all these games going down to Carson, um, it's our turn. All right. We, we, uh, We have a great record versus them in elimination games. Let's keep it going. Let's keep that clout back in our corner, especially after that disappointing result last time around. But I think, folks, that about wraps us up for episode 120. I'd like to thank you all for listening to Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. You can follow us at LAFC S2S on all your social media platforms. 
can reach out to any of us if you'd like to come on the show, chat a little black and gold with us. We'd love to have you on. But on behalf of Chris, Christian, who could not join us this evening, the brilliant and legendary sound engineer, Mr. Wilton Perez, and myself, Jonathan. Thank you guys for listening. Take us home, Sticks. Up to show up. Together, this our culture. Feel the force of a supernova. Stay flying that FC dorsum. Hey, shopping down to Nikki's, Koreatown Liddy. Cape us so mommy, about to drop her fifth. They won't need to stop, but I ain't. Come to my house, I'll defend that bank.